All right. Uh, growing up, one of my good friends growing up, his name was Jamie Ship. Okay, and so Jamie Ship was the kid who I spent the night at his house all of the time. We spent the night at his house all the time. We played a lot of Nintendo 64 together. We probably put in 10,000 hours together on Nintendo 64. And so me and Jamie Ship grew up. He had a sister. Her name is Alex Ship. Okay, and so you're going, why are you guys? Why are you putting their names? Why are you putting them on blast right now? <laughs> like, why are you saying their names? Uh, here's the thing. I am name dropping because Alex Ship. She grew up to be a movie star. Okay, she is uh, the the current storm. All right, she's been the storm in the X Men movies. If you're familiar with it, she was in the movie Tick Tick. Boom on Netflix recently. And so, you know, it's just kind of a weird thing. Like this, this kid who I used to jump, jump on the trampoline with uh, is now Storm from X-Men, right? And so it's exciting. And I'm watching Tick, Tick, Boom, and she's the main love interest. And, and you know, I'm just, wa- like, I'm, I just name drop these two as much as I can, right? Like I'm going, I know these two. I know them deeply. And so Jamie, her brother, he actually got into acting as well. And he's in different car commercials and different commercials in general. And so he was in one particular car commercial, a Buick commercial. And uh, it would come on a lot during Suns games. And I watch a, a few Suns games here and there. And so, and so as these games came on, I every time would say, that's Jamie Ship. I spent the night at his house growing up all the time. And I, I'm saying that first excitedly. Then I'm saying it half ironically, half just like kind of name dropping like I am, but just to my family, which is really annoying. And so I'm saying that that's Jamie Ship. Every time the commercial comes on, I used to spend the night at his house all the time. And so one of these times the commercial comes on and I go, that's Jamie Ship. And my oldest daughter, she goes, yeah, you spend the night at his house. And you play video games. I get it. Like, I know, dad. I know. I know, you know him, okay, we get it. Just sick of my whole shtick there and sick of the spiel I would give all the time that commercial came on. Now, I tell that story because we are in this series called We Want a King. And, and we're looking at the first three kings of Israel. And one of those kings is David. And the story that we are in today is one of the most famous stories in all the Bible. It's one of the most famous stories in all the world. And it's the story of David and Goliath. And it could be really easy for us church folks or even people that have heard this story a lot to say, I've heard this one before. I don't really want to listen to this. Like, I know what you're going to say. I know that story. I don't want to listen to it. And the only problem with that is that's just not how we're supposed to treat the stories in the Bible. That's not how we're supposed to treat God's word. A lot of times it feels like we treat God's word by, as if it's something to consume. And once we've consumed it, we can move on from it. But that's not what God's intent, and that's not what the writer's intent was in putting this thing called the Bible together. It really is something we're supposed to come back to time and time and time again. And even if we're very familiar with the story, we're, we're supposed to let that story remind us of things or refresh us or point out things we hadn't seen before when we were younger or, or at a different time in our life when we didn't notice something that was clearly in these passages. And so today... We're going through this story about David and Goliath, which probably everybody knows, at least the cliff notes on, and it could be easy for us to tune out, but I would encourage us to encourage us to not treat this story like something that we've already consumed, so we've moved on, but to treat it as something that could speak to us today, that could speak to us right now in our seats, and say something, maybe not new to us, but remind us of things that we need to hear. Okay, and so that's what we're going to do today. We're going to be in David and Goliath. Here's how we're going to uh, do that together is we're going to be in 1 Samuel 17, 
1 Samuel 17, it's, it's a long chapter. Like we've been doing in this We Want a King series, the whole first part of the sermon is just going to be a story time, okay? We're going to go through a lot of these verses together. I'll hop over a few of the verses that, just for time's sake, that have maybe a little bit more details or things that are easier to summarize. And we'll just have the first whole part of the sermon will just be a story time together. Which, again, I don't think we could get enough of just pouring the stories of the Bible over us, okay? I think that is always something good for us to do. And so that's what will be the first part of the sermon. And then after we kind of finish the David and Goliath story, there's two questions in particular, two questions that I think this story challenges us with as God's people. Like I think as we read this story and get to the conclusion of the story, there's at least two questions that I think this story asks of us as God's people. And I want us to consider those questions for a few minutes. So that's what, what we'll do. We'll go through 1 Samuel 17 together and then spend some time thinking through these two questions that I think that this true story is asking us together. So let's hop into it. We're going to be in 1 Samuel 17 to kind of just briefly summarize where we've been at in this story, is, or in this even series, is we've had the Israelites crying out, saying, we want a king like the nations. So God, through his prophet and priest and judge, Samuel gives them a king like the nations, and that guy's Saul. And Saul, like I've said, he's a big, strong, king-looking-like guy. And so he becomes king, he has some successes, but he has a lot of failures that are rooted in disobedience to God. And so God begins to remove Saul as king. He says, hey, you're not going to be, your sons aren't going to be the next king. And he says, you know what, I'm even going to remove you as king. And so then last week in the story, what we saw was God anointed this new king, which was David, this forgotten son, this shepherd boy who was a man after God's own heart. Okay, and so we're going to see what happens next in this story with David, the newly anointed king, but he's not king yet. He hasn't been, he hasn't deposed Saul. Saul is still the acting king of Israel, even though God has had some words with him. So let's hop into verse 1 of 1 Samuel 17. It says this, Now the Philistines gathered their armies for battle. And then I'm going to hop to verse 3 because these next few verses just describe the place and where they're lining up and how the Israelites meet them. And verse 3 says this, And the Philistines stood on the mountain on one side, and Israel stood on the mountain on the other side, with a valley between them. And there came out from the camp of the Philistines a champion named Goliath of Gath, whose height was six cubits and a span. He had a helmet of bronze on his head, and he was armed with a coat of mail, and the weight of the coat was 5,000 shekels of bronze. And he had bronze armor on his legs, and a javelin of bronze slung between his shoulders. The shaft of his spear was like a weaver's beam, and his spear's head weighed 600 shekels of iron. And his shield-bearer went before him. He stood and shouted to the ranks of Israel, Why have you come to draw up for battle? Am I not a Philistine, and are you not servants of Saul? Choose a man for yourselves and let him come down to me. If he's able to fight with me and kill me, then we will be your servants. But if I prevail against him and kill him, then you shall be our servants and serve us. And the Philistine said, I defy the ranks of Israel this day. Give me a man that we may fight together. Well, when Saul and all Israel heard these words of the Philistine, they were dismayed and greatly afraid. Okay, let's pause there for a little bit. 
There's nothing like a Bible story to remind us that ancient Israel was a very different place than today, right? Like you read the story, and you're like, this is just a different world where armies line up, yell at each other, and do all sorts of things to get ready for battle. It's just a totally different world. And I think that's important for us to know because a lot of times we enter these stories going, this is exactly like Flagstaff, Arizona. Like, this is totally the same. Like, and you're like, no, it's not, okay? It's not. And so it's just a totally different world. And so uh, before we kind of talk about this face-off over some kind of region of land, it seems like both of them are laying claim to, let's talk about this Goliath guy for a little bit. So kind of the first character that enters the scene is this, this Philistine, this, this Goliath guy who has a whole bunch of heavy armor, who if you look at your footnotes, it says he's something like, I don't know, nine feet tall, okay? And so if you're anything like me, you go, okay, is that fake? (laughs) Like, what's going on there? So let's talk about Goliath and his size a little bit here. So uh, in our kind of tradition of this story, Goliath a lot of times, he gets talked about as if he's a giant, right? We call him Goliath the giant, like a lot of times. And uh, the Bible actually never refers to Goliath himself as a giant. That being said, First Chronicles talks about Goliath's dad as being a giant. So it's not like total stretch to be like a giant had a giant. Um, so, uh, so that could be hard because we go to this and we go, okay, this is starting to sound like fairy tales. What's going on here? He's nine feet tall. That, I know people were shorter back then. How is he? What, what is going on in this story? Now, there's kind of two ways to take this. The first way is to go, maybe the world is mysterious. And maybe there's different things that have happened in different times and places that you can't reconcile because you haven't seen evidence of things like that. But maybe the world's just a mysterious place, and this is a true testament to his height. And he just really was nine feet tall, and there was some nine foot tall all guy with a really tall dad and a really big brother, as First Chronicles says. That, that could be part of it. Another way to take this is to kind of look at the other Jewish writings around this story. So the Dead Sea Scrolls, which is a copy of the Bible, it has Goliath's height at a different height. It has it a good two, three feet shorter, okay? Which we know people can be six, seven feet tall, right? Uh, so it has that. Josephus, who is a historical writer uh, for, for the Jewish people, he also has Goliath's height as that same two, three feet shorter number. So what do you do here when you have this kind of a discrepancy in the Bible? Well, listen, first you just have to realize sometimes in the Bible, especially with numbers, kind of the number copying and translating over, something seems to miss sometimes, okay? So sometimes you'll have like the Dead Sea Scrolls say this, the Septuagint, which is the Greek uh, translation of the Old Testament, says this. There, the, the, sometimes the numbers will be a, a little bit off here. And so what that can do to a lot of us is shake our faith and say, well, this is not really God's word. But I think it's because we have a misunderstanding of God's word. A lot of times we think of God's word as like golden tablets handed from heaven, okay? But that's not quite what God's word is. God's word is a reliable witness and testimony to the things God said and did in the world. And so when it comes to Goliath's height, it doesn't freak me out personally because I just go, okay, somewhere down the line they, they miswrote the height or something happened there, okay? And so when it comes to Goliath, wherever you're at in the story, you could either go, hey, there really was some nine-foot-tall dude at some point in history that was really strong, or, hey, they got the number wrong and some of the other people translating the Bible, copying down the Bible, has the right number. So you can kind of choose what you want to do with Goliath there. Don't let that uh, stop you from reading the story because the point is Goliath was really big, 
Okay, Goliath was a really big, really strong champion of the Philistines. Okay, personally, I like to think of him as like a Shaq-like sized guy, okay? I kind of imagine Shaq actually in this story. And so if that helps, maybe it does it. Um, and so I imagine a really big Shaq-like guy. And the point in all these descriptions of Goliath here are to say, this guy was really big. This guy was a champion. This guy had weapons heavier than your legs that he could just, you know, spin around and throw at you. Like, this guy was a huge guy. And so Goliath, in the story, he's the champion of the Philistines, and we're reminded of how different that time was than this time because apparently sometimes battles were decided by the biggest guy on one side coming out and saying, somebody fight me, win or take all. I, I kind of love that. I kind of wish, like, that's how wars happen today, right? It's just like, here's our biggest, like... Okay, you win. You get the land. Like, uh, that, there will be less casualties. I would love it. Um, and so Goliath's coming out. He's coming to Israel every day. He's bigger than everybody in Israel. And he's saying, you guys are lame. You're losers. I can beat you. Send somebody out. out. Let me fight this guy. What we find in the verses that we're going to kind of hop over, and I'll summarize here, is that Goliath did this for 40 days. He came out to this little valley. They're each on kind of a, a mountaintop or a mountainside area. And he's coming down into the valley. And he's saying, bring somebody. Morning and evening for 40 days. Well, Saul, the biggest Israelite probably, or one of the biggest, he's really afraid. All the Israelites are afraid. And I, I mean, I don't blame them. <laughs> it kind of makes sense. And they just kind of spend this 40 days waiting, not knowing what to do. Honestly, I kind of respect the strategy of waiting. Because, listen... The waiting game is, sometimes it's really downplayed as not a good thing. But, like, you don't know. Goliath could go to bed one night, have a heart attack. They got to send out a smaller guy. Like, you don't know what's going to happen. And so the Israelites are so afraid. They're just playing the waiting game because they know nobody's as big as Goliath. And so what we see in the next few verses that I'll summarize here is David. He's too young to go to battle. But his oldest three brothers, who we met last week, they are old enough to battle, go to battle. So they're at this little mountainside valley area. And they're kind of just in this waiting game, and David's being sent to bring them food as, as they play this waiting game. So the story picks up for us, I believe, in verse 22. So let's hop down to verse 22 as David is bringing a bunch of food to his brothers. Uh, I've got to turn my page the correct direction. Uh, verse 22. And David left the things in charge of the keeper of the baggage and ran to the ranks and went and greeted his brothers. As he talked with them, behold, the champion, the Philistine of Gath, Goliath by name, came up out of the ranks of the Philistines and spoke the same words as before. And David heard him. All the men of Israel, when they saw the man, fled from him and were, were much afraid. And the men of Israel said, Have you seen this man who's come up? Surely he has come up to defy Israel. And the king will enrich the man who kills him with great riches and will give him his daughter and make his father's house free in Israel. And David said to the man who stood by him, what, what, what shall be done for the man who kills this Philistine and takes away the reproach from Israel? For who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should defy the armies of the living God? And the people answered him in the same way, so shall it be done to the man who kills him. Now Eliab, his eldest brother, heard when he spoke to the men, and Eliab's anger was kindled against David. And he said, why have you come down? And with whom have you left those few sheep in the wilderness? I know you, your presumption and the evil of your heart, for you've come down to see the battle. And David said, what have I done now? Was it not but a word? 
And he turned away from him toward another and spoke in the same way, and the people answered him again as before. So let's pause there for a little bit. So David shows up. He leaves his stuff in the baggage area. He goes down to the battle scene. I think David does actually kind of want to see this battle a little bit, right? Like he could have just delivered the food. He could have brought the food with to deliver the food. But he wants to go down, check things out. He starts talking. And in the midst of kind of seeing the battle scene, Goliath comes out again, does his taunt. Send me somebody. Send me somebody. David hears everybody kind of freaked out. And they start whispering. And David's like, what's going on? And they're like, this guy wants to kill one of us. But... King Saul did say if one of us could kill him, they would get riches, they would get one of his daughters for a wife, they would, their father, like their house would become royalty in a sense. And then we see David's first words in the, in the book of 1 Samuel. We see his first words in this book, and I think it really shows the duality of David as we're going to get to know him over the course of this series. David goes, wait, what? What was that? <laughs> like, what? what? What does the guy who kills Goliath get? Did you, was that money? Money? Richard? A, a woman? Okay. Hey. I mean, hey, yeah. Why are we letting this guy talk like this? Define the armies of the living Lord. Like, right? In the one hand, David, you're like, you're a little skeevy perv. And then on the other hand... You're like, God is powerful, and like, he, this is like, he, this is the duality of David we're going to see throughout his story. He's, he's, got, he, he's really got a duality to him. So David's going around, he's talking, he's like, tell me about these riches. He's like asking different guys, which daughter do you think it will be? And so they're just like kind of going through, talking through this while Goliath's doing his thing. And Eliab, like an old, only an oldest brother can, sees how annoying David is being. And all the youngest siblings going, no, he's not. Yes, he is being annoying. And Eliab you just are down here trying to see the battle, man. Get out, give us our food. Get out. Go back to the sheep, man. You're too young for this. You're so annoying. Like, right? Like, just like every oldest sibling has ever said to their youngest siblings, right? Not, not you, other oldest siblings, but maybe just me. Um, and so what happens is David still kind of continues talking around to the crowds of people. And David, I think, starts going, I could take him. I could take him. I could do this. Yeah, I could do this, right? Like, I got God on my side. And then the word gets to Saul that David's going around like, I'll take him. I'll go. Let's do this. Like, I'll fight the giant. And so Saul hears about it. He says, okay, David, come over here. Let's talk. Let's hear what you've got to say, why you want to take on Goliath. And our story picks up for us, verse 32, with David responding to Saul. And David said to Saul, let no man's heart fail because of Goliath. Your servant will go and fight with this Philistine. And Saul said to David, you're not able to go against this Philistine to fight with him, for you are but a youth. And he's been a man of war from his youth. But David said to Saul, your servant used to keep sheep for his father. And when there came a lion or a bear and took a lamb from the flock, I went after him and struck him and delivered it out of his mouth. And if he rose against me, I caught him by his beard and struck him and killed him. Your servant has struck down both lions and bears, and this uncircumcised Philistine shall be like one of them, for he has defied the armies of the living God. And David said, The Lord who delivered me from the paw of the lion and from the paw of the bear will deliver me from the hand of this Philistine. And Saul said to David, Go, and the Lord be with you. Okay, let's pause there. So Saul brings David in. And just, okay, you want to take him on? Tell me what you got. What, how are you going to take him on? You, you can't take him on, David. Like, you, he, you, you are a kid. You're a youth. This guy's been fighting and killing people since he was a youth. 
He's big, man. Like, you can't do this. And David goes, you know what, man? I, I, I don't tell a lot of people this. You know David told a lot of people this. Uh, <laughs> but sometimes when I'm watching the sheep, there's like a bear or a lion. I kill him. I just straight kill him. One time one rose up on him, I grabbed him by his beard, his bear beard, and I just beat him to death. Right? Now, if I'm Saul, I'm going, you're a liar, dude. <laughs> like, that didn't, that didn't happen. But David said, hey, this, is, this happens sometimes to me out there where, the, where this, this bear or lions come to take one of my sheep, and the Lord just empowers me in a way to take one of them down. If I can take down a bear, I could take down a giant. Like, this is, this is, not, this is no problem for me, Saul. And somehow, inexplicably, Saul is like, okay, all right. I mean, I've heard enough. You go. Go fight him. Go. May the force be, I mean, may the Lord be with you. Like, right? Now, I always got to go, why did Saul be like, why, was, why did his mind change so quickly? And, and part of it is I think David was telling a true story of what he did with bears and lions at times. But I think part of it was, you know, Saul, in this story, he's been kind of cowardly. He's one of the biggest guys in Israel. He's kind of in the background. He's not really facing Goliath. He was like, he was Israel's champion, but he's trying to get out of it. So I, I personally, I'm just adding to the text here. I think he was like, okay, if I send David, it gives us a little time to run away. So get my chariots ready. Go ahead, David. Like, go do your thing. And then I think Saul's plan was like, let's just hightail it out there while David's getting killed. Um, and so, so anyway, Saul goes, okay, I can't just send you out there like this, little shepherd boy. And so he's like, take my armor, take my weapons. And David puts it on in the next part of the story. And it's just, this is how small David is and how young he is, if you didn't know from his braggadocious ways. But he's, he's like, he can't walk in the armor. He can't carry the armor. He can't carry the weapons. This is how small he is. And he's just like, Saul, I can't, this is... I don't think he'll kill me because I'm, like, in here, but, like, I can't fight him. I don't think I could kill him. And so uh, can I just kind of do my own thing? Like, again, I, I fought a bear once. And so Saul's like, okay, do your thing. So David goes down to the brook, a little river, a little stream. He picks up some rocks and puts it in his bag. He puts five rocks in his bag. And now most of us know what's about to happen with one of these rocks. And, and I fully believe that rock is empowered by the Lord in this moment to display who God is. But sometimes people kind of doubt this story because they go, how could a rock take down a big guy? And I would just say this. Have you ever seen a river rock before? Those things would wreck you, man. Like, those are like some deadly rocks, okay? I would never want to get hit by one of those things. But anyways, David picks up those rocks, puts it in his bag, and he heads out to face Goliath. I imagine he winked at his brother right before and then headed down to face Goliath. And so the story picks up for us, I believe, verse 41 is what I want to say. Yep, 41. So let's hop down there. And the Philistine moved forward and came near to David with his shield bearer in front of him. And when the Philistine looked and saw David, he disdained him, for he was but a youth, ruddy and handsome in appearance. But the and the Philistine said to David, Am I a dog that you come to me with sticks? And the Philistine cursed David by his gods. The Philistine said to David, Come to me, and I'll give your flesh to the birds of the air and to the beasts of the field. Then David said to the Philistine, You come to me with a sword and with a spear and with a javelin, but I come to you in the name of the Lord of hosts, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you've defied. This day the Lord will deliver you into my hand, and I'll strike you down and cut off your head. 
And I'll give the dead bodies of the host of the Philistines this day to the birds of the air and the wild beasts of the earth, that all the earth may know that there is a God in Israel, and that all this assembly may know that the Lord saves not with sword and spear, for the battle is the Lord's, and he'll give you into our hand. Let's pause there for a second. So David goes to face Goliath, doesn't have a sword, doesn't have any sort of weapon of war besides his sling, that he's going to sling these rocks at him, probably a bag of rocks. Maybe his shepherd's staff, I don't know. Maybe that's why Goliath says this thing. He's just insulted, right? He's just insulted. He goes, you're going to, really? Come on. (laughs) And then Goliath says, all right, you want me to kill kid? I'll kill kid. Hey, kid, I'm going to kill you. All the animals outside are going to eat you, Okay. Bird's going to eat you, other animal's going to eat you. And you know David's a teenager because part of his comeback is the exact same thing Goliath said to him. Oh, no, I'm going to kill you, and they're going to eat you, bro. <laughs> like, that's how I also know this is a true story. Like, this, like, this is accurate. It's too accurate. It reminds me of my, my teenage self. And so, and so, but David also says something else. He goes, listen, man, you fight for your gods. My God fights for me. You fight for your gods with all sorts of weapons. My God fights for me without any weapons. That's how powerful my God is. In fact, this fight's going to be over. It's going to be displayed to all for, for all to see how powerful my God is who fights for me. So let's do this, all right? And so the story picks up for us. Verse 48. When the Philistine arose and came and drew near to meet David, David ran quickly toward the battle line to meet the Philistine. And David put his hand in his bag and took out a stone and slung it and struck the Philistine on his forehead. The the stone sank into his forehead and he fell on his face to the ground. So David prevailed over the Philistine with a sling and with a stone and struck the Philistine and killed him. There was no sword in the hand of David. Then David ran and stood over the Philistine, took his sword, and drew it out of its sheath, and killed him and cut off his head with it. When the Philistines saw that their champion was dead, they fled. And the men of Israel and Judah rose with a shout and pursued the Philistines as far as Gath and the gates of Ekron, so that the wounded Philistines fell on the way from Sherem as far as Gath and Ekron. And the people of Israel came back from chasing the Philistines, and they plundered their camp. And David took the head of the Philistine and brought it to Jerusalem, but he put his armor in his tent. Okay, let's stop there. And so the Israelites win. So that what happens is David says his smack talk. David starts swinging that thing. He launches it at Goliath, hits Goliath. Goliath's down for the count. Can you just imagine, again, imagine you're in these battle lines and you're watching. You're like, you're going, David's going to die. David's going to die. okay. Okay, oh, okay, he connected. Oh, okay, Goliath's falling down. Okay, okay, what's David doing? David's walking up to him. And then the other side's going, what's he doing? What, like, how did he do that? What? And then David just picks up his sword and just chops his head off, right? Like, if I'm a Philistine, I'm going, ah, what? like, their kids can beat us up. Their kids can beat up our giants. And I'm, like, taking off, right? And I'm running. And then the Israelites, they know what they got to do. They just said, let's go, right? Let's do this. And so they start chasing down the Philistines. They win the battle. And this is this famous story of David and Goliath. Where God takes David, this young shepherd boy, and uses him to defeat this powerful, big powerhouse that, that is part of the nation uh, of Philistia, the Philistines. And so, so that's our story. And it's a famous one. We've heard a lot of times. What do we learn from the story? What do we take away from the story? And so 
I think there's really two questions for us that, that I think God almost wants to challenge us as his people with as we read this story, right? It can be easy to treat the story like it's just a fairy tale, right? There's even a really big guy that we call a giant and just say, well, that was a fun story, right, about having faith or whatever it is. Um, but but it's, it's not a fairy tale. It's a real story that made it into God's word that God wants to do something with in us, his people, many Thousand, like three, 3,500 years later. And so what do we do with this? I think there's two questions that God almost would ask us as his people or would challenge us as his people as we read this story, okay? And so here's the first question. The first question that I want to ask us as God's people after reading this story is, do you, church, do you have a God-saturated imagination? Do you have a God-saturated imagination? A God-saturated imagination is one that can see God moving in any situation. A God-saturated imagination is one that sees that all of life can be an encounter with God. Church, do you have a God-saturated imagination? One of the main contrasts in this story is David and really everybody else. But David with Saul and even his oldest brother, Eliab, and it's an interesting contrast because we know that Saul's really big. And we know from our story last week that Eliab was also really big because Samuel thought he looked very kingly and was tall and all this stuff too. And so you've got two of the biggest physically characters in the Bible being contrast, or in this story, being contrast with David who's smaller. And they can't help but see what's in front of them. They can't help but be afraid. Yet David is not afraid. David has a God-saturated imagination. Saul's hiding in the background. Eliab's chastising his little brother for believing that the Lord could deliver them. Even Goliath chastises David. But David has a God-saturated imagination. He sees this situation. He remembers God's promises to the people of Israel. He knows that God wants to restore the whole earth, somehow through the people of Israel. He knows that the people of Israel are supposed to display God to the nations. And so he sees this impossible situation with a champion that's far bigger than him. And instead of feeling the fear that Saul and Eliab, the two big characters in the story besides Goliath, instead of having fear like them, he says, what if God does move here? What if God does do something here? Perhaps he could. David has a God-saturated imagination. He can see God moving, even in the most impossible of situations. I have to admit, I relate more to Saul. As we've been in this series and we've been going through 1 Samuel together, I can't, every time I kind of read a lot of the Saul passages, I feel like I'm going, man, this feels a little bit too close to home. This reminds me a little bit too much of myself. I, I feel like I'm in this place in life where I often see what's in front of me, calculate the risk, don't take certain risks, protect myself. Like I, I feel all, very often, I, I feel just a little bit similarly to Saul. If, if anything, if I'm reminded of David in myself at all or that I'm like David, it's like maybe a younger, more foolish version of myself at, at the most. But I just, I, I, I've been reading this and I go, man, I'm, I feel like I'm a lot like Saul. I'm often afraid of what's right in front of me. I'm often forgetting God and his promises. In fact, there's this song by John Mark McMillan 
It's called Tongues of Fire, and it kind of talks about this dynamic that happens in, in our relationship with God where almost like when we're young, we have this God-saturated imagination where God could do anything through us, but then as we get older, we become probably more like Saul, and those things stop happening. In fact, I'm going to read a few lines from the song. The words will be on the screen, but he says this about that kind of feeling. He says, the nights we spoke with tongues of fire, the days we walked out on the wire, we were young and we were not afraid. The angels whispered in our ears to tell us what the hilltop hears, beholden to the promises we made when we were young and we were not afraid. There were moments in my life where, where I stepped out in faith like David, where I had this God-saturated imagination. But I, I have to say that as I hear that song, as I listen to that song for the first time, I couldn't help but relate to it, and I couldn't help but see when I'm reading this story about Saul and David and the contrast between them that I'm a lot like Saul. Very often I don't have a God-saturated imagination. And so church, my question to us is, do you have a God-saturated imagination? Because this story, as we go through it, I think it really is trying to help us see what God does through his people when we have a God-saturated imagination. God very often moves despite our lack of imagination. But this story kind of goes, hey, God will use your hands to do impossible things like defeat bears and lions and giants when you have this God-saturated imagination, when you can go, what if God moved in this situation? What if God did something here? It should not just be the young and the immature among us who thinks God can do big things. We shouldn't get stuck like Saul. It shouldn't just be the young among us who can imagine God to do big things. What if we, church, began to look at the totality of our lives and say, what if God did something in this? What if God did something here in this part of my life? What if God did something here in this place I work? What if God could do something? Church, do we have a God-saturated imagination? Not an unhealthy superstition or an overzealous foolishness like a lot of us turn our faith into, but what if we had spirit-empowered hearts, which we do, and those spirit-empowered hearts caused us to imagine God to move in all sorts of ways in the worlds and the places that he's put us in. Imagining specific situations. What if God did something here? I have to admit, the people that imagine that way and, and have that God-saturated imagination, they tend to annoy me. They just do. But I also have to admit, those people tend to see God move. They, 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 ju they just do. Do we have a God-saturated imagination? I really think maybe the main point of this whole story is to say, what if God's people lived with a God-saturated imagination? Right? That, like, when we have God-saturated imagination, our faith becomes much more of an adventure where, where, we can, where God is going to use us to kill lions and bears. It's easy for us to become cynical. It's, it's, it's easy for us to just be realists. And it's worth noting that just because you have some God-saturated imagination, it, it, God's not a genie. It's not like you just imagine thing, God will do things and then he does them. That's not how God works. 
But I think we go too far the other direction and we become cynical, realists, and we look a little bit too much like people that don't even believe in God at all. Church, what if we had a God-saturated imagination that could see God moving in all sorts of specific situations? Maybe God can reveal himself to that person that is in your life that's antagonistic to Jesus and doubts God and makes fun of this whole Christianity thing you do. Maybe God can give you inroads into a place of brokenness in our city where you can move and change and do things. In fact, you know what? There, I know there's somebody in our church who years ago, she had this God-saturated imagination. Her name's Michelle Preeb. She saw that homeless people were dying at night in the wintertime, and she talked to a bunch of churches to get people to stay at churches at night with different government help. And now it's become this whole government program. And they've built up so that I don't even think churches are part of it anymore, but it's because there's more government provision there. She had a God-saturated imagination that said, what if God could use me to stop people from dying? Do you have a God-saturated? Maybe God can free you from whatever sinful patterns and behaviors that seem to have a spell over you. Maybe God's church can continue to grow in a place that opposes it more and more every day. Too often, we've let life's disappointments and the, the real things out there, the real big and scary things out there, convince us to forget what David knew. That there is a living God. There is a living God that is moving through his people and wants to move through his people. How can we begin to let our imaginations become God-saturated? I think that's what this story wants to challenge us with. And just a, a key to help you with, things like knowing his word, things like prayer, things like going out in the world and kind of just doing things and seeing if God moves or if he doesn't move, those kinds of things help our God-saturated imaginations. Church, may we be a people that let our imaginations be saturated by God because I think that might be the whole point of this story. The second question that I think that this text asks us is this, is do you know that God, do you know that God works through the weak things in this world? Do you know that God works through the weak things in this world? He always has and he continues to do so. It seems like God wants to remind us how powerful he is by working through weak things. God wants us to see that it is really he, he is the one with all the power, not the giants in our lives, not us ourselves, but he's the one that holds the power. And he's so powerful that he can continue his mission of restoration through the whole earth through weak things and weak people. Do you know that God almost always does his work through weak things? In Genesis, it seems like God's like, who are the knuckleheads? Who are the scorned? Who are the cowardly? They're going to be part of my family. They're going to be the ones that propel the mission of God to restore all things forward. In Exodus, he picks a guy with a stutter who seems a little bit cowardly himself, who's been rejected by the Hebrews and rejected by the Egyptians to free God's people. In Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, God takes that same people, that enslaved people, who were relatively small group of people compared to all of the other nations, and he makes them a people. 
not just a bunch of wanderers, not just a bunch of enslaved people. He makes them a people. And his goal in making that people is that they would display, that this small people would display the infinite God of the universe. In Joshua, God further establishes that people who don't have fighting ability, who don't even, they might not even have had too many weapons, I think. And he gives them a land to further display that. In Judges, God takes men and women like Gideon, and he delivers them in the midst of their own weak, horrible sinfulness time and time again. And often how God delivers them is by stripping them of all human power to show them that God is the one that's powerful, not them. And now, here in 1 Samuel 17, we see that story again. God takes a young, artsy shepherd boy to defeat the biggest champion of a powerful nation next to Israel. God works through the weak things of this world. He's constantly trying to communicate that to us throughout his word. And I don't want us to miss that. Because if we miss it, I think we miss some important moments in who God is and how God moves and what God does. In fact, I think God continues to do it that way all throughout the Old Testament because he knew one day that his main work in restoring all things, in defeating the giants of this world. His main work was going to be done through weakness. Look at the story of Jesus. Jesus, the king of the universe, is God in the flesh, and he takes on the form of a baby, one of the weakest things on this earth. Not just a baby, but he's a baby in a poor family. Most of us are not poor, but being poor is difficult and tiresome and hard. And that's the family that God puts himself in. Not only are they a poor family, they have to uh, flee persecution and violence of their, from their own nation very early in Jesus' life. When, once they come back in, they set up shop in a town that nobody respects, and it's just a backwoods town. Not only that... Jesus is born into Israel, which isn't really its own country at the time. It is under the occupation of Rome. Rome owns Israel. Rome is the real ruler of Israel. One of the most powerful forces in history is the country that, in, in one sense, enslaves and rules over Israel. And Jesus grows up becoming a rabbi with no schooling or pedigree. And Jesus' followers are demon-possessed, sinful, blue-collar workers, traitors to their own people, prostitutes. These are the people that Jesus surrounds himself with and begin to follow him. It's not the best network for if you're trying to raise money. Some of the tax collectors could cover it, but besides that, it's just not a good network of people if you're looking to be powerful and influential in that world, in that place. And Jesus does all of that in weakness in a world with two giants that cause more weakness. There's this giant of sin, this sinful power that soaks the earth all through Jesus' life. That there's no corner of the earth that doesn't have some level of evil in it. And then there's this giant of death where people Jesus grows up with and knows die before him. 
that people die all the time in this world. No one is, can escape death in Jesus' world in that time and in that place. You couldn't hide like Saul from death. You had to face the giant death at all times. Jesus grows up in weakness in this world that causes more weakness. And then God's plan to get rid of that weakness is more weakness. The way that Jesus is going to defeat those giants of sin and death is by going to the cross. This execution tool, this symbol of the power of Rome. Jesus is actually going to go up on that cross and he's going to defeat death by letting death consume him. He's going to defeat sin by letting the sin of others put him up on that cross. God moves through weakness. Jesus doesn't come to this world and become more powerful than these giants and evil things in our world. He already is, and he's so powerful that he can defeat them by their very mechanisms, sin and death. And that's how Jesus defeats the giants of our world. That's how the true and greater shepherd, that's how the true and greater anointed one, that's how the true and greater forgotten one, that's how the true and greater weak one faces the giants of this world and defeats them. Church, do you know that God moves through weakness? He just does. And we can't miss it. It's a major point in the story of Scripture. Your life, it might seem full of weakness. It might seem full of weakness. But guess what? That is good news. That means you're blessed because God does his best work in weakness. If you're like me, church, you run away from weakness. When I start to feel weak or when I know things are going to make me weaker, I try my best to avoid those things. But I'm missing out on seeing God move in those moments. I'm missing out on experiencing God in certain ways because I look to my own power instead of God's power. Church, may we have a God-saturated imagination that fills our minds even in the weakest moments because that tends to be where God slays the evil giants of this world. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. God, thank you for this story. Thank you for refreshing it in us this morning. Thank you for reminding us of, of some of the basic tenets of Scripture and the things that you want to call us into. God, I, I, uh, I pray that we would be a church with a God-saturated imagination. God, I fear because of my own cynicism as a leader here, that that's going to kind of infect and poison, in a sense, the rest of this group. God, let not my shortcoming of cynicism stop our church from having a God-saturated imagination. God, you are moving, and you're doing all sorts of things. And then, God, I want to pray a prayer of comfort. God, for those of us that feel weak, feel defeated, feel broken, and feel like you're not there at all, God, would you help us see that you are there? God, may we read uh, things like the Beatitudes in Matthew 5, God, and be reminded that you will bless us in the midst, in the midst of all sorts of weakness. God, we love you, and we need you this morning. Would you comfort us with yourself? Amen.